Good morning, everyone. Super good to see you this morning. Can we give uh, uh, Brandon and his team a hand for leading us this morning? Uh, every week, just so grateful for uh, those who lead us in worship and just the talent that he's given. Uh, he's given this place uh, through the years. So grateful for that. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1 this morning as we bring to a close our uh, sermon series that we've been doing uh, to celebrate Easter. Um, I know we're past Easter, and so this is kind of unique. We're actually going to focus in on uh, one of the other things that Jesus did that only he ever did, right, which was actually to ascend into heaven post his resurrection, and, and how important this is for us who believe, uh, what this impacts, uh, how, how this impacts our, our lives as followers of Christ. That's where we're going to be heading in today. Uh, we're looking forward to that. But to start, I want us to have just a word of prayer, if you don't mind. So let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful for um, just the fact that you are our resurrected king, that you're alive, that you're well, um, and that you want an intimate place in our lives to shape us and form us to become more like you. We're grateful for uh, what today offers to that. God, just the gathering of your saints as we come together, as we fellowship with one another, and as we seek your scriptures together, and how you use this to draw us into deeper living uh, um, for your son. And so we ask by the power of Christ that you would use this time to shape us, to form us, to convict us, to do whatever work you need to do to draw us nearer to yourself. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Let me go ahead and say, too, if you're here and you are a guest, we're grateful that you're here. My name is Pastor Adam. Uh, I'm uh, uh, the equipping pastor here. Pastor Brett uh, is our lead pastor. And, and we would love the chance to just get to know you, to interact with you. Um, you can find a guest card around you or follow the QR code and just let us know that you are here. We have a gift for you out in this connect room as well, uh, right out this exit. Um, we'd love to just chat with you and just get to know you at whatever level you're comfortable with, right? We're also not going to be prudes and, and, and invasive into your lives. So, if you would let us, uh, we would like to come in and, and just join you in your faith journey wherever you might be. Um, and so fill that out if you don't mind. But listen, when I was nine or so, my grandfather, um, who was my dad's dad, uh, he passed away from a sudden heart attack when he was in his uh, mid to low 50s. Um, so kind of a bummer there, right? Um, and I remember going through all of that with my family. At that time, my family lived in Texas and my grandparents lived in Indiana. So since I was only... Uh, just a young guy, you know, uh, nine years old, um, given the distance between us and them, you know, 18-hour drive between us and them, uh, I didn't have uh, much of a relationship with him. I don't have much to go off of when it comes to my, my dad's dad, outside of some vague memories, some stories uh, and details that my parents have sh shared to me, uh, and some pictures. Uh, that's about it, and I know a lot of you probably have a, uh, a similar story there. But regardless of my uh, limited relationship with him, um, I know that his impact has blessed our family and continues to do so, right? Uh, as an example, many of you know my father, um, wonderful guy, excellent dad, hard worker, generous, faithful husband. Um, he's a person of high moral, moral character, and I know much of, of who he is is because of the impact that my grandfather has had on him. I know much of who I am is because of what my parents have put into me, and I know, hope that that can, continues down into my kids, right? And so the legacy um, is continuing to a degree. And I could share more stories and details about how his legacy continues to kind of leak blessing into our family. Um, 
And, you know, I'm grateful for that, but you need to understand, I would trade the drips of his legacy in a heartbeat for the opportunity to actually share some time and life with him. And it's interesting, as I thought about that, and I think about uh, talking about the ascension this morning, it's interesting that many believers, I would say, um, still uh, uh, live in reverence of the Savior um, in a way that, yeah, maybe they, they say that he's alive and active, but really, they, they treat him more. They treat Jesus more as a beloved family member who's passed away. Right? There's a fondness there. Uh, the family still gathers and talks about him. Uh, we do uh, uh, good things and we're religious because that's what the family does. We gather together. We get, our, we get our emblems and our tattoos to remind us of how much Jesus has meant to us. But when it comes to, to the active living out of faith... They maintain control over their decisions. They remain, uh, maintain sovereignty over their own lifestyles and their perception of truth. I mean, how else do really kind, gracious, polite, sweet church people just ignore things in the scriptures, right? Just ignore truths in the Bible. We may say that Christ is still alive, but the surrender of our hearts says something different. We have a resurrected king. He's alive and he's well, and he wants an intimate relationship with each and every one of us. We can't get caught in the habitual coasting on Jesus' legacy without um, actually being connected to Jesus' living and beating hearts. It's the ascension of Jesus Christ that call, calls us to this form of living, as if we actually believe Jesus is still alive. I know we celebrate it, I know we talk it, but do we live as if Jesus is actually still alive? As if we, as if we actually have a king who has authority over heaven and earth and over our own lives. Right? That's the nature of, of our chat this morning. So I want to invite uh, Matt Buell up, who's going to read our passage. This is in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And if you're physically capable, would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Hello, Matt. Good morning. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Awesome. Thank you so much. You can have a seat. So that's the account. That's the ascension. Jesus being taken straight up into the clouds. Can you imagine being there and seeing that? It would be remarkable, right? It won't be anything compared to what we're going to see someday when we're with him. But still, that would have been a, a wonderful scene. So what I want to do today is chat about um, um, why the ascension is so important. Again, this is kind of new territory for me. I don't recall the last time I preached a sermon just on the ascension itself, right? And so this was a fun study, and it's a, um, lots of importance uh, to the ascension. Of course, we're only going to look at three reasons why it's so important, but nothing we ever talk about on a Sunday morning is comprehensive, is it? So there's others, right? So don't come at me and be like, well, you didn't cover the whole thing. I'll be like, I know I didn't, but I pointed out three things, okay? So the first one is this. The first one is this, and it's so compelling, that the physical image, what we see at the at the ascension is the physical image, the picture of Jesus bridging the spaces between heaven and earth. 
Jesus is the only one who's done this, right? He, he is the bridge between heaven and earth. And at the ascension, we see that and as we see him rise. Now, in Acts chapter 1, we see this account in the first few verses, how he's taken up and there's a crowd that's watching and then uh, um, they're all gazing into heaven and then these, these angels just appear to them. Most of what we're going to talk about today, I want to look at the angels' words where they say this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven, right? And they say the same Jesus, the same Jesus that you knew on earth, the same Jesus you watched bled out on the cross, it's that same Jesus who has risen from the grave, from the grave and he has, he has ascended into heaven, right? Yes, Jesus, even, even when he died, right, he descended to the lowest parts of the earth, right, to the grave, and he has ascended into the highest of highs. There is no space in all of God's creation that Jesus cannot traverse. There's no space in all of creation where Jesus cannot go. It's the same Jesus that walked and talked and lived intimately with all of these people. He's the same Jesus he can go. He went low and now he's going high. It's remarkable. And I've got fixated on this idea of space, right? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the Bible, you see this division of spaces that God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Right? Two spaces. From the beginning, there were these two spaces, the heavens and the earth. They were broad, right? The heavens were the skies and the earth was the land. And make no mistake, they're both gods and he is in both. But metaphorically, if you read through the scriptures, the Old Testament writers would always speak of God who lives in the heavens. God is above. And then mankind who lives on the land. God is above. God is higher. Man is below. And even below that is death. So for you to see this in the scripture, Psalm verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 4 says this, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. His eyes watch and his gaze examines everyone. Psalm 47, verse 2, For the Lord the Most High is awe-inspiring, a great king over the whole earth. Right? He's the Most High. In Psalm 68, verse 4, Sing to God. Sing praises to his name, exalt him who rides on the clouds. I like that. His name is the Lord and celebrate before him. This is why through the scriptures the concept of the mountain is so important, right? Before airplanes, the highest place you could go as a human being was where? The mountaintop, right? And so if you read through the scriptures, there's this elevated thought regarding the mountain, right? In Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4, it says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Most scholars believe that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain where they lived in harmony with God. If you think even more notably than that, um, Moses met with the Lord on the mountain when he received the law for the people, the Ten Commandments, and, and all of the, the whole law. He was on the mountaintop, right, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 15 and 18. It says that Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered it, the cloud being the presence of God. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses from the cloud. And the appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Jesus or Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now fast forward thousands of years later to Acts chapter 1, and where do we have Jesus? 
He's on the Mount of Olives, right? But instead of God coming down in a cloud or in a fire, we see Jesus being lifted into God's presence. He's taken into the clouds. He's taken into God's space, proving that he's the one who can go in both. It reminds us earlier of Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray. And he says to pray in this way, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Also reminds us of what Jesus said literally right before he ascended, Matthew 28 verse 18. That all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is given all authority. He can go in any space, and he has authority over every space. And based on that prayer that we read in Matthew chapter 6, he commands and invites all of us to join in to his heavenly workings now. That through our living for him now, we can actually traverse the space. We can actually live for his heavenly will now. Isn't that awesome? Right? And so the ascension points us to this. The ascension uh, calls us to this. He is the bridge, and he invites us to live in a way that, that, that proves this bridge of Jesus between heavens and earth through our lives. Right? The second thing is this. The ascension affirms Jesus' relationship with the Father. The ascension affirms Jesus' relationship with the Father. And I love this because up to this point, think about how many people might have doubted Jesus' relationship with the Father. I mean, he was this guy claiming to be the son of God, and now he's brutally murdered on a cross, during which he says, God, why have you forsaken me? So if anybody heard that, if anybody saw this wrestling, then surely they would maybe possibly doubt Jesus' identity as being from God. No, uh, no question, people still deny this constantly, right? This is still one of the greatest doubts in the faith of people, is Christ's identity as son of and one with God the Father, but the ascension points us to a, an affirmed relationship between Jesus and his father. We see Jesus alive and well here now at the ascension, risen from the grave, and to even further affirm his divine relationship with the father, what better image is there than for the son to be physically lifted as the father wraps Jesus back to himself? Right? If you look at uh, verse 11 says, the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven. I want you to notice that Jesus is the passive participant in this. Right? Jesus didn't kneel down in his superhero pose and then blast into the heavens, leaving a crater in the ground. He didn't do that. He was lifted. He was picked up. He was taken as a father would pick up his son. As I was thinking about this, I, I was uh, recalling a sermon from Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler's a, uh, a preacher in Dallas that uh, I've listened to a lot and just have valued his, his voice. And one of the stories he told was of this man who had this uh, family, right? So there's this man, and he always instilled this principle into his young boys. And the principle went like, went like this, the boy goes down and the girl goes free. Have you ever heard us say that before? Have you ever heard that before? The boy goes down and the girl goes free. It's an awesome principle. Men, uh, pour it into your kids. It's a great principle, right? Matt goes on to tell the story about this guy who's working. And he's working and he sees his son in a red wagon at the top of a hill. And he's coming down the hill and he's out of control. Right? He's out of control. And so the dad stands up and just sees his son coming down. And at the bottom of the hill he sees this little girl on a bike. 
And so he knows the collision is imminent. So he gets up and he gets ready to go before, but right before he goes to just go out there, he sees his son intentionally rock the wagon over, hit the ground, get ravaged by the ground while the girl little, you know, rides off and goes free. And so he watched his son intentionally do this and inflict pain upon himself. And so uh, um, the dad and the mom go outside and they start to brush off the dust and brush off the blood, you know, off of this kid. And while they're doing that, the boy looks up to his dad and he says, the, the boy goes down and the girl goes free, dad. And Matt Chandler was sharing this principle in the context of godly manhood towards women. It's a good principle. But I thought of this story as I thought of the ascension because imagine how much pride this dad must have felt to watch his kid choose pain in order to satisfy his father and to save another. And so at the ascension, you see this father filled with pride pick up his son with loving arms, wrap him back to himself and say the same message he's going to tell us someday. Well done. Well done. This is the message to all of those who live to please the heart of God. This was Jesus' heart. In John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus says, The one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. This should be our heart too. This is what he calls us to. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. We're called to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd in the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with every good uh, uh, to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So the ascension is important because it affirms the relationship between God the Father and Christ the Son. The third reason it's so important that we're acknowledging today is this. It's the ascension gives certain hope for his return. Such a huge deal. This, the ascension gives certain hope for his return. If you look again in verse 11, it says, um, The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. And so what we have here is kind of the model for his coming again someday, if you believe it, and you should. He will come again someday. He will come to this place to that same area in the Kidron Valley where there will be a war of nations. And up to this point, he will have brought his people into his fold. And he will not be coming at this point with mercy in his eyes, but with fire. He will be coming with fire in his eyes. In Revelation chapter 19, we see this picture of Jesus. Listen, this is the risen Jesus. This is the Jesus we just sang to. This is his description. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. And its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself, and he wore a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. And a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod, and he will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is your Savior. This is your resurrected King. This is him now. This is him. And he will return in power and in glory. And at that point in time, 
nobody will have a choice. Everybody will know he is the resurrected king. Everybody will know he's alive. But those who are his don't need to wait for that to believe. Now, I suppose had Jesus died again after the resurrection and then entered into the presence of God, we might have more reason to doubt his return. Had Jesus been anything less than who he truly is, fully God and fully man, had he navigated the earth with kindness and good teaching, but never backed it up with miracles, namely the resurrection, then I suppose we would have more reason to doubt his return. Had he ascended into a heaven and all we have is a recording, but no witnesses around him to see him actually rise into the clouds, then I suppose we would have more reason to doubt his return. But he closed all these loops. He closed all these loops. These aren't reality. Rather, he left us with a hope that can be held to confidently and firmly. There will always be skeptics, of course, but those who believe have far more reason to do so than any other in their unbelief. And as we said at the start, this confidence should dramatically impact how we live out our faith on this earth, particularly in the way that it guards our hearts and minds, right? And so to shift our focus into uh, the impact that this has on our hearts, the ascension Helps us, it helps us guard our hearts and minds from, from a litany of things. But first, I want to notice is just this. It guards us from getting too stuck on tradition. It guards us from getting too stuck on tradition. Why? Because Jesus is alive. He's alive and he, he's not stopped working. He didn't stop working in the 50s. He didn't stop working at the Reformation. He hasn't stopped working. He's still working. And so whatever tradition that you've embraced and that you've held as sovereign, you don't need to because he's still living and he's still moving and he's still shaping things around us. He's still working. He's still making things happen. Of course, his word and his truth, these are eternal and they are unchanging and they are perpetual. But when it comes to methods and traditions, we cannot hold too tightly because our living Savior reserves the right to shift things up so that more people can come to him. He reserves that right. Truth will never change, but how we pursue it and how we embrace it and how we share it and teach it and promote it, these methods are adaptable. To fit what works best for your mind and personality. To fit what might be best, uh, most effective in reaching the existing culture with truth. Including people that you know. The people you know in your life who need Christ. This was Paul's heart um, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 22 and 23 where he says, I've become all things to all people so that I might by every possible means save some. He was a Pharisee, he was a Jew, he was easily, he easily gave up those traditions in order to, to become whoever he needed to become without compromising the truths of the gospel so that other people might know, which by the way was his purpose in verse 23, I do all of this because of the gospel. But as soon as you get stuck and you start believing that your method is the only way, then that's when you start acting like Christ is only alive in some parts but not in others. But Jesus is completely alive. He's not bound to your preferences, to the methods that are most meaningful to you, which means we can all just lighten up a little bit. Like what you like and quit talking down about other people who like things different. Like what you like and quit diminishing everything else. If they're doing the work of the gospel and people's lives are being changed, then just lighten up about it. Don't get lost in that. Second thing is this. It guards us from spiritually checking out. 
Um, in Luke chapter 12, verses 37 and 38, we see this passage about the Lord's return, and it's the call to alertness. Right? If you read the New Testament, alertness is a, is a huge principle for us as believers. It says, blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes, when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready, have them reclined at the table, then come and serve them. And if he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. Alertness. But for some reason, it's really easy for us to, learn, to, to lose that, isn't it? I'll name a few, right? One of the ways is just the Luke chapter 8 parable of the sower. Uh, people lose alertness because they get, just get too stuck in the world. They become so concerned with living for the things now that they forget to live for, for God's heavenly will, right? In Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower, persecution, but namely uh, just the worries and riches that are tied to wealth and pleasures in life. These are the things that rob people of their alertness to actually live on mission for the Lord. You just, you love things. You love this world. You're, you've become consumed for, for this world, and you care little about doing his heavenly will. Another thing I'll, I'll point out is, is spiritual retirement. This is another thing that compromises our alertness. I mean, the Bible is literally littered with wisdom about older people teaching and investing in younger people. But I think for some reason... It's just so easy for so many older people to not just retire from work, but also from any real or vibrant engagement with the local church or with believers that they've not already known for 20 to 30 years. But it doesn't just apply to older people. It also applies to younger people as well. Younger people who, who like to say, well, well, I tried that, but it didn't really click for me. And so they just write off, you know, the church setting. They might still keep the name Christianity, but, you know, church, that just wasn't their thing, and so they're, they're beyond that. Or how about any of us who have anybody in, their, in our lives who are, who are younger than us? There's always something to be pouring out to other people, and if your whole uh, uh, attention span is, is committed to just intake and what you take in and how things work for you and how church can bless you and how you can be served and, and how all of these things mean for you and what you feel like with all of this stuff— that's, it compromises your alertness. You're already lost in the weeds. You're not living on mission. Which brings me to the third thing that I'll acknowledge, and that's from Acts chapter 1. I'm going to call this stargazing, right? Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 11. These angels come down, right? Everybody's just staring. Verse 10, it says, while he was going, they were gazing into heaven, right? They're all looking up, which, of course, is an amazing thing. Of course, they're looking up. But then suddenly, two men in the white clothes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who is here, he's going to come again. There's stuff to do. Why are you standing here just looking up into heaven? I kind of parallel this with people who just love to get lost in all the, the, the theological nonsense. They love to look up. They love to think up. They love... This gaze, but they have a hard time seeing anybody else eye to eye, heart to heart, soul to soul. They love the intake. They love the book of Revelation. They love calling any world leader the Antichrist. They love, you know, all of that stuff. Conspiracy theory, Christianity. They love that stuff. They're lost in it. They're just gazing up, stargazing. It compromises your alertness. Jesus ascended to heaven, and he will return again. And whatever spiritual condition you are in when you meet him, 
you're accountable to. So maintain your alertness and don't get lost in the world. Don't get lost in, in, in just everything you can get and everything you can attain. Don't get lost in the pointless spiritual distractions. Remain alert. The ascension calls us to this. Thirdly, the ascension guards us from what I will just refer to as a sentimental or surface level faith. In uh, Ephesians chapter 1, we see this prayer from the Apostle Paul. And just note this prayer. This is the prayer we have for you guys, by the way. It's a prayer of depth and richness in the faith, okay? Uh, Listen, verse 17 through 19. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. This is pretty awesome. I would love this. I would love for this to be my description, right? That I would be neck deep in my revelation and knowledge of God. That my heart would be enlightened. That I'd be filled with the hope of his calling on and on. This is the same power, by the way. The same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead and to seat him on the throne is the same power that he works in us for spiritual enlightenment as we grow and know and strengthen in our knowledge of God. It's the same power. It's an ongoing work. It's deep and it's abiding. It is not a sentimental remembrance of a deceased relative. It's an active relationship with your Savior and your King who has fire in his eyes. It is our response to the risen and ascended Savior. It is singular. Listen, our response to our risen Savior is singular. It is a completely surrendered life. It is a completely surrendered life. We looked at how at the end of Revelation, John gives this awesome description of, of Jesus, right? Well, he gives, he gives a very similar description of Jesus at the start of Revelation. And it's almost identical. Why? Because that's who Jesus is right now. That's what he looks like. That's who he is. He's sovereign king over everything with fire in his eyes. And his face shines like the sun. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. All right, here's that description. John turns around to see whose voice it was that spoke to him. And he says, when I turned around, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze that is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like sun at full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. But look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is our living king. This is him. This is the one who we love. This is the one who we serve. This is the one who resides in us through his Holy Spirit. Our only proper response is what? It's to fall down at his feet as if we're dead. It's just to lay out at his feet in worship and surrender. And what that looks like is this. Whatever he speaks, you listen. Whatever he desires, you do. Whatever he does, you trust. Whatever he, wherever he is, that's where you want to be. 
And even though his presence before us is the fullness of authority and power, he will take his right hand and he'll put it on his shoulder and he'll say, don't be afraid. He offers you peace and he offers comfort. So in full surrender, he will be the full confession of our mouth and the motive of our being. Why? Because he's alive and he's well and he's active. And the proof of all of this should be found in the way that we live. The proof of his life should be found in ours. Through his word and his Holy Spirit, he wants still to be intimately present in your life to shape you and to use you for his kingdom and his will. But for this to happen, it requires full surrender, full humility. I guess some real talk this morning might be, might be handy. I heard a, the story of a man who, I, he just knew that his life had gotten out of balance. I think we all struggle a little bit with surrender, don't we? And I'm going to tell you the story of a man, and I know this man's story because I feel this all the time, often. Um, he, he, he noticed that his life had gotten out of balance. I mean, the culture and the devotion of his family and of his household was just given over to other things. Not bad things, but certainly lesser things. And it dominated their home. It dominated their schedules. It dominated their, their lifestyle. It dominated even their faith. I mean, church just became something that they could kind of go to occasionally when nothing else was going on. And the whole time, he knew in the back of his head, that the balance was off. The whole time he knew that this wasn't pleasing to the Lord. But he was neck deep. And when you're neck deep, you feel stuck. And so the intimidation of actually making the changes needed to set a new culture in his home and in his family commitments and in his schedules, that, that intimidation outweighed any real conviction that he knew God was stirring in the back of his head. He was too intimidated to actually obey God. You know another word for this? Bondage. Bondage. You are enslaved to the world that you've created. And so now every day you come to church and you know God's stirring something back here. And you do everything you can to keep it back there because you know it's going to cost you something to move it up to here. To move it to the forefront of your brain. Freedom is not cheap. Jesus died so that he could offer it. You better believe it's going to cost you something to live in it. Surrender is the key to live in spiritual freedom. People don't see it that way. It's counterintuitive, I know, but surrender is the key to live in spiritual freedom. To actually get to that place where you're actually willing to endure some kind of bloodshed to set a new culture in your home, to set a new tone in the faith of your family members, to, to guard your schedules, to guard your finances. This stuff isn't easy, but what it affords you is freedom where you don't have to come here every single morning and just know for a fact that God wants something different from you and to do everything you can to justify your way around it or to ignore it. That is miserable. That's just miserable because I know, I know that feeling. I know that. And it is not fun. And my guess is a large portion of people here this morning are in that same tension. And you're actually, you feel safer fighting that tension every single week than you do to actually relinquish whatever you need to relinquish to set something new in. You're too intimidated. You're in bondage. But it's surrender to the Lord as if he's actually real and alive that's going to break that for you. And also, you have a 
a church family here and, and leadership and people who would love to come alongside you and pray for you and to help you with that as well. Listen, I know it's going to be hard to sit your kid down and say, hey, you know what? We're going to take a break from travel sports this year. We're just going to do it because we realize that this has directly compromised our devotion to the Lord. So we're going to take a break. I know it's hard to look at your, your budget that's already wound tight and say, you know what? This 10% right here, we're going to give this to the Lord this year. I don't know how we're going to do it yet. Something else is going to have to take a hit. I know that stuff's not easy. Or for you to actually shut Instagram off for a moment because you know that there's been a compromise there. And yeah, you're going you're gonna to have some fear of missing out. People are going to keep doing things and sharing things. You're not going to know about it. Listen, for somebody who's off of social media, that's not that big of a deal. It's not a huge cost, right? I like, a whole, I like people a whole lot better when I'm off of social media. But for you, it might be different. But if you've noticed that it's compromised directly your alertness, then is that something you're willing to do? I don't know what else it might be for you. To finally start that Bible reading plan. To actually commit anew to the gathering and service of your church. To start a Devo time with your family. How many of you dads are out there and you've known in the back of your head, yeah, headship something I need to step into here. Leading my family spiritually is something I need to step into here. But I have no idea how to do it and I don't really care right now. I'd rather just keep it back there and not deal with that. I'm going to feel like a hypocrite anyways when I talk to my kids. My wife's just going to look at me with hypocritical eyes because she knows I don't treat her the best or at least don't ever ask her about her spiritual heart. God calls you to work through that. God calls you to step into those zones. Do you think your kids and your wife are going to hate you because you started to care about their spiritual well-being? More than likely, they're craving it. It's just gone unspoken. We could go on and on, and we don't have time for that. But listen, surrender to the Almighty King. That's the point. And if you prefer to be intimidated and in bondage to that, instead of actually doing the hard stuff, to go there, what does that say about what you truly trust in your Savior, who you claim? What does that say about your heart to truly do what pleases Him? Is He not worth this for you? I'll answer that for you. He certainly is. He certainly is. It would be so much more worth it to live with freedom in Christ than to be in constant spiritual tension. Surrender is the answer. Let's pray. Our Father, would you incline us to this? Whatever is in the back of our heads this very moment, God, would you move to the forefront of our minds? God, to, to isolate that thing, whatever that might be, whatever that has been, that conviction in our heads, whatever that has been, to isolate that and to put it in a room with just it and you and to let you dominate. Father, would you do this work in us, whatever that is, to draw us into a deeper place of faith. And whatever that thing is that's been intimidating us and keeping us from obedience and that has been dominating our lives and schedules and uh, all of that stuff, whatever that is, God, would you take hold of that and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Father, for all of us in here um, who, who, who claim you and, and know you and have a relationship with you, but we are just so stuck in these other places of tradition and places of just habits and, and, and surrenders to other things. God, would you just resolve these things in our hearts this morning?
Maybe it won't be a moment, of, a moment, a moment fix, but God, uh, uh, maybe it might start a process of prayer and uh, planning to actually help follow you in obedience against these things. God, whatever it might be, would you use your word and use your spirit to convict and move and shape us? God, as we sing this song now, what a Savior, would you let this be the response of our hearts? As we, as we just surrender ourselves to the true nature of your Son, as we think about our risen King, who is alive and well and alive in us and has authority over heaven and earth and even our own hearts, God, may you use this song in this time of response to draw us to you, to draw us to surrender and humility. And would you use that in our lives for your kingdom and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.